Good morning, everyone. We're trying to get in all the snow we missed this winter, so glad so many people could make it. Um, so previously, I've tried pop quizzes, and those have been mixed. Last time, didn't work out. Are you saying we're not smart? Last time, I went with a single question, and while no one has uh, filed a complaint. We're going to switch it up this time and go with a survey. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I will give you two different things. If you think the first one is better, raise your left hand. If you think the second one is better, wait, raise your right hand. All right, so which is better, going to a sports game or a comedy show? Uh, left hand is the first one, so my right, your left, and then so. So uh, left is for uh, sports show. Yes. Oh, yeah, man. Which is pretty simple. Left hand museum, right hand camping. Left hand museum, right hand camping. All right. A cell phone or the Bible? Which one? You have both. <laughs> yeah, but where is our heart? Where is our focus? The Bible's on the cell phone. <laughs> is it better to go to a friend who is close by or a neighbor who's far off? Left-hand friend, right-hand neighbor? I'm not getting good reviews from the survey so far. <laughs> I appreciate you human humoring me. Is it better to go to the house of mourning or the house of feasting? Hopefully you chose the right option, the house of mourning. Um, as... I think it's fitting to remember that verse from Ecclesiastes as we prepare to study Lamentations this morning. So please turn with me there. Lamentations is a book of mourning. It is a, a sorrowful cry. And I, I want to give a, a bit of a warning. Some of the themes that are covered in this book are graphic. Um, I won't apologize for scripture, but this book addresses some things that, that may be difficult to hear or think about. Um, I will avoid the specifics of it, but um, this book does touch on issues of violence against women and children, which may be particularly hard to hear. Um, but I, I think they're in here for good reason. And they should not be downplayed. It's good for us to remember as we prepare to study this book that there is great value in mourning. That it is fitting and proper at times to be weighed down with lament and sorrow. As Christians, we should be well aware that sorrow often comes to us in life. And oftentimes, God purposes that sorrow must come before glory. 
Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sends him. If they persecuted me, so too will they persecute you. So we should expect that just as Christ did, we should, we will suffer before we enter into our glory. Once again, this is emphasized in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Abraham says, <clears throat> To the rich man who is lamenting in anguish, child, remember that in your life you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. If we are to have properly ordered affections, there must be times where we lament about the things that we see in the world. So please keep all of those things in mind that that there is a, a necessary and fitting part to sorrow as we prepare to study this. And please pray with me. Lord, we gather because your word is truth, that it opens the eyes of the blind, that it brings the dead to life, and because we have been brought to life by it. Allow us to weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice, so that we, having our hearts tuned to your affections, would worship and glorify you in all that we do. Please be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The main theme of Lamentations is sorrow over the punishment of sin. This book is a a deeply sorrowful cry in response to punishments that God sends to his people for their sinfulness. It is a, a lament over the terror of what has happened. It is a lament for guilt and remorse of their sinfulness. And it is a lament (coughs) and it is a lament of sorrow for their distance from God. Matthew Henry calls it a book of holy sadness, which gives a sense that this book represents a pattern of the proper cry. Thank you of those who have tasted punishment from the Lord for sin. Thank you. Um, uh, Matthew Henry describes it in, in such a beautiful way, the, the purpose, the value of this book. He says, As we have sacred odes or songs of joy, so have we sacred elegies or songs of lamentation. Such variety of methods has infinite wisdom taken to work upon us and move our affections, and so soften our hearts and make them susceptible to the impressions of divine truths as the wax of the seal. This picture of of wax that needs to be softened first before God can make his imprint on it. Our hearts need to be broken over sin 
before we can truly turn to him and be shaped in the ways that he would shape us. We need to lament sin before we can move close to God. We need to see the evil of sin and feel its sting before we can be comforted with the gospel. The truths of the gospel are not for people who don't feel the weight of sin or don't understand its seriousness. But the blessing and the good news of the gospel are for those who realize, like this book captures, the sorrow that fittingly comes with sin. I'm fine. There's just a tickle in my throat that doesn't seem to go away. Um, There is some debate over the authorship of the book. Uh, From what I was able to read in the commentaries, I feel relatively confident that Jeremiah is the author. But because uh, neither Lamentations nor Jeremiah address this book to him, as being written by him, scholars are debate a bit over whether or not he's written it. Um, I think the fact that this book so well captures the fulfillment of so many things that Jeremiah was prophesying and the way that it cohesively um, fits together and captures the, the heart of someone who loves God and has seen these terrible things come to pass leads me to, to feel comfortable saying that, that Jeremiah is the one who, who wrote it. <clears throat> this book was like, likely written shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem and early into the exile of Judah among the nations. After Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem, destroying the city. This is is written from a a first-hand witness of the destruction and devastation and the the failure of of all of the hopes that they had of survive of their nation and the temple and the capital of Jerusalem. This book is structured into five chapters, which I really appreciated after having done a couple longer books. Each chapter is its own poem that is is set apart from the others, but proceeds in a a logical order. They are not a, a just a loose connection of different poems like the Psalms often are, but rather they seem to have been either written or combined together to work out this theme of lament for the, the destruction of Ju- Jerusalem. 
these poems are, are songs. They're not just um, literature, but they're meant to be sung. They're meant to be a, a heartfelt expression of the emotions captured inside of it. It may be difficult at times for us in our life to think about what it is like to to sing with such deep sorrow in our hearts. Um, so much of the music that we're <clears throat> exposed to today is is happy or upbeat or even if it's got more sorrowful themes is sung in a enjoyable manner that that people are are pleased to partake in but i i feel like frederick douglas when he's talking about the singing of slaves captures the way that um, sorrow can be expressed through song so well he says in his uh <clears throat> In his book, I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of a slave represent the sorrows of his heart, and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. This picture of a, 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 a deep cry that is only the, the barest relief, just the relief of, of expressing that which is crushing your heart. These poems are, are the songs of aching hearts that, that feel very little solace in the midst of their circumstance and see very little hope as they have seen so much destruction and devastation. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are styled as funeral dirges. They are songs that are, are meant, they are reminiscent of songs that are meant to be sung at a funeral. <clears throat> This helps capture the depths to which things have fallen, that they are like death, like lamenting the loss of a loved one. And this is fitting as we think about lamentations as being themed around punishment for sin. In Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death, and that and we have the hope of the free gift of God, but the, the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. And so it is very fitting that as they, they look out at the wages of sin being levied against the nation, that they respond with a funeral dirge. They are looking out at a dead nation. And if there was, in the time of the kings, any hope that Israel could redeem itself by its own efforts, that it could be good enough, it is clear that they have nothing with which to save themselves now. All of their walls are broken down. The temple is destroyed. There is no, no way, <clears throat> as we'll read, for them to practice the law and the sacrifices that were supposed to bring them near to God. <clears throat> Could you just, maybe you're going to cover it, but could you just give us 
a little overview of the historical setting? I mean, you're describing the captivity and the, the debauchery and, and uh, brutality that went on in the city, but yeah. what was the cause? Were you going to address that? Or? Uh, I touched on it a little bit, okay. but I can go into more detail. Um, during the, the time of Israel, you had the, the reign of the kings, where Israel was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being ten tribes, um, and the southern kingdom being Judah, with the Davidic king sitting on the throne. The northern kingdom was carried away by the Assyrians into captivity, and Judah remained for a little while after that. Um, and then ultimately it was sieged by the Babylonians. They had conquered all the way to Jerusalem. They surrounded the city, cutting off its supplies and sieged it for a time until they broke into the city and destroyed it, carrying, destroying the capital of the nation and carrying the kings off into captivity as well as most of the nation. Is there anything you would add to that, so, brother? So would you give some dates, possibly, for this? I, I don't have the dates okay. written down. I'm sorry. So this would... Go ahead, Pat. Somewhere around. Six centuries. So somewhere around, you know, 570-ish, when, when Judah finally fell. Yeah. So this is Jeremiah's... During Jeremiah's uh, lifetime. Yeah. As he's observing what's taken place before his eyes. As he's seeing the city being ransacked and... Ruined and destroyed, and mm -hmm. the yeah. people evacuated and captured and exiled. Go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you for for I didn't drawing know how, all how much everybody knew about that. Um, and so these are are funeral dirges for a dead nation mm -hmm. that is in need of a God who is capable of bringing life from the dead. They. They have no hope in their own strength, and their only possible hope for salvation is the God who has done this all. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are funeral dirges, but they are also acrostics, which is a, a common style in Hebrew poetry, where the first verse starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then the next verse is the next letter, and so on and so forth. The acrostic form helps make the songs easier to memorize, and they give a, a sense of the sweeping nature of the topic being covered, um, as it were, A to Z, that, that everything is being sort of engulfed in a, a complete handling of the matter is here. Um, this devastation has spread over everything, each of these poems, being chapters 1, 2, and 4, start with the word how. Obviously, H is not the first letter of the alphabet. This is translated. But it's striking that, that they all start with this, this um, usage of how. Not as a, a question of how has this happened, but of how deep the matter is being that is being discussed. Um, chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger 
has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Chapter 4, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. You get a sense from this, the repeated bewilderment at the depths of destruction that has happened, at how deep the nation has fallen. But it also becomes clear from the structure of this book that chapter 3 is the most important chapter. It sits at the center, at the heart of the book, which is a place of emphasis. And like the other (coughs) poems, it is also an acrostic, but it is a triple acrostic. So the first three verses all have the same, start with the same letter. And then the second three verses, the next letter, and so on and so forth. This gives a emphasis to the poem and is a, a literary style that is meant to, to capture the reader's attention and focus to emphasize that this is the main point. This is the, the big takeaway that everything else needs to hang off of. Um, And the fact that chapter 3 is the center of this is really encouraging, which we'll realize as we get deeper into the content of the chapter. And finally, chapter 5 is a prayer to the Lord in response to all of the matters that have been covered. So let's take a look at the punishment that is being lamented in this book. But before we get into the the details of the punishment itself, we need to frame it so that we can feel rightly the weight of what's happened. So we have to look at where this punishment is coming from and why it is happening. This punishment is coming from God. Some people in the world might be tempted to to comfort us in suffering by telling us that God has no part in it, that he did not bring it about to pass. They might try to to teach that God isn't sovereign over everything as a way to try to answer suffering. But it's clear from books like this that there that the Bible has knows nothing of a God like that. That God is sovereign over every last thing that happens, even the deep suffering and sorrow of his people. So read with me in chapter 2 and we'll begin to get a sense for how Lamentations draws out God's sovereignty over everything that has happened. Starting in verse 1, how the Lord and his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. All the inhabitants of Jacob in his wrath he has broken down, the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. 
He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. And the chapter goes on and on and on and shows that all of this is not first and foremost the Babylonians' actions against Israel, but is God's sovereign actions against his own people. This punishment comes from the Lord, their God. The Lord raises up, and he has now brought them low. So then the question becomes, if the Lord is doing this to his people, why is he doing it? Where does this come from? Why does this happen? While there is is much suffering that comes to people as a result of the, the general fallen nature of the world, and as a result of the various sinful actions that um, man is apt to do, this is a lament specifically for punishment that is brought to the Lord for the sins of his people. This is not the general suffering that befalls all, man, all of mankind living in a fallen world. But this is the specific suffering of a people who have turned from their God and sinned grievously against him. It is not happenstance, but God's punishment here is a vindication of his righteousness. He has loved his people faithfully, and they have whored away to other gods who are not gods, but are blocks of wood and metal as if God himself is worth less than even inanimate objects. And this is his punishment for their sin. We read in Lamentations 1.14, My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot stand, we see that, that the sins of the people have become the, the thing which they are weighed under. The, the author uses this analogy as a yoke, a burden that the sins were shaped into. I wonder if that's where Bunyan got his allegorical sense of yeah. Christian carrying that heavy burden upon his back just getting bigger and bigger as he realized more and more the depth of his evil. Yeah. And a burden that, that he could not get That's off right. himself. You know, he, he, I was listening to it recently right. and yeah. he, he is constantly looking mm-hmm. for relief from this burden that weighs him down on his journey. But, mm-hmm. You know, um, Jeremiah spends a lot of time in his book about shepherds Mm-hmm. and what they should be like and what they aren't like and mm-hmm. so on. And yet he exemplifies it here by the way in which he bears the burden for the people, mm-hmm. the grief that he has over their condition yeah. and sadness uh, is uh, magnified under these circumstances. It just shows how unselfish a shepherd should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, he's called the weeping prophet mm-hmm. as he, he weeps for the sorrows of the people. Um, it is a bit interesting in that point about shepherds. 
in Lamentations 4.13, um, it talks about the, the sinfulness of the people um, and how that is the origin of all these things that have happened. One point, you know, Jesus himself, when he came into the city at the end of his mm-hmm. journey, he looked at the city and it says that he wept, mm-hmm. knowing what was ahead for them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, he wept. There's only about three times where Jesus weeps, mm-hmm. but that's a time that he wept. Similar to the way Jeremiah saw the city, Jesus himself saw it yeah. in, in fullness, you know, in reality. Jeremiah, Lamentations 4.13, this was for her sin, for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch so that they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. You get a picture where the leaders of Israel, the the priests and the prophets, themselves have become unclean. A picture of the, the defilement of the sins of Israel. In uh, 118 we read, the Lord is in The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my men have gone into captivity. The the author sees sin as the source of it all. 3.42, we read, We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing us without pity. This this is why all of these things are happening. They are happening because of the sin of Israel. So when we read the horrible things that are occurring, and we read about how deep the devastation was and it, it it's hard at times if you really think about how horrible the these circumstances were we have to see in them a taste of the just response of a righteous god against sin it's amazing that paul had to say to the jews and romans now they would know this right they would know lamentations and he says to them, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous indignation of God. And there's that warning for them. And they know this in their history because the people he's telling them this know this. Mm. God has not left himself without witness. Amen. Amen. Uh, you, know, you know, the Jews today are at the Wailing Wall. Yeah, yeah. Called the Wailing Wall because they're wailing over yeah. what happened to Israel. Mm-hmm. And they're in their prayer books, they're praying, and in their prayers, they're praying for the restoration of the city, not understanding that the Jerusalem which is above is our mother. You know, yeah. We're looking for a city which has foundations, and, and, and Hebrew says, we here we have no abiding city, but we look for the one to come, and that's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, yeah. Brother Greg. Yeah. Blind people can't see, Gary. Yeah, yeah, they are still over their eyes. As it was over our eyes. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Until God took it away. We we were dead like all of all of this nation and the way this nation has fallen and needs a God to save them, you know, as they've fallen under the punishment for their sin. We needed the same thing. And so this is all a punishment for sin. And so we need to bear in mind that God is giving the a taste, not even the fullness. The, the real punishment for sin goes far beyond the wrath that is displayed in this book. But this is a, a taste of the just um, punishment of those who have sinned against God. So let's take a look at some of the ways that the punishment of God is talked about and captured in this book. So often, and and from the very beginning, uh, Jerusalem is equated to a woman in this. Um, she it is repeatedly um, she is repeatedly called a her in this book to help capture that ideal or the daughter of Zion. And as we see in other books of the Bible that, that God talks about Jerusalem as his, his wife who has been unfaithful to him. Um, and so we should hear all these things echoing in it. And this analogy finds its, its sad outworking in the destruction of Jerusalem being pictured as the violation of a woman. We read in Lamentations one one, how the lonely city, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. And again in verse four, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. And again in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She groans and turns her face away. And it continues on and on. This picture of what was once beautiful and prized. You get the, the vision of a, a bride on her wedding day arrayed in splendor, mm-hmm. now defiled in the dust and broken down. Mm-hmm. And what a, 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 a wretched lament as the, the, Author tries to capture the sorrow of this. Did you ever see the Kingdom of Heaven? That movie with Orlando Bloom. And anyway, there's a scene in there with this woman who was the princess of this great Persian city, and they get dragged off into exile. And now, instead of all her beauty, her head is like completely shaved, and she's covered with dirt. Just, it's just what I thought of when I saw this. Just that, what a change! What an awful thing. If you read this enough, I think you could probably weep if you thought hard enough about what people were seeing. You know. Uh, there were parts of it studying it sitting in this for hours that you know there's a weight to it that is is hard to capture Um, 
which is partly why I felt it was so necessary to see this in the context of punishment for sin. That this is this is a taste of the desolation that is the proper response to sin. This is how bad sin is. That this is the right way that it should be treated or taste of it. So we see Jerusalem being compared to to a woman in this way. We see the temple being destroyed and the the collapse of the what was all the forms of the Hebrew religion at the time. Lamentations two verses six through ten. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place, the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palace. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival, a place that should be reverent for God. Enemies are breaking in and throwing a a debaucherous party. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. This is the the just destruction of all the, the blessings that God had given them because of their sin. Because in their sinfulness, uh, as Paul says, they, they judge themselves unworthy of the blessings of God. And see... God established all of these institutions for their benefit, the priests, the prophets, the kings, to to bless them, to guide them in the ways of righteousness. And he has now seen fit to tear all of it away. But one of the, the beautiful things is that in Christ, we find the perfect fulfillment of this. We see that the priests are destroyed. We see that the kings are carried away into exile. We see that the prophets no longer receive the word of the Lord. But in Christ, we see that same destruction as the prophet, priest, king is destroyed on the cross, but then is resurrected to reign forever, a prophet, priest, king who will never be taken away, never be destroyed. And so you can see even a a slight taste of how this is preparing us for Jesus and his suffering and the beauty on the cross. 
but in this moment it is a a picture of the just punishment of God for sin. Over and over through this book we get the, the laments over the starvation of the people. If you turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4, we get a a good capture of this. As Israel is besieged and under the siege, day by day, they have to ration out food because there's only so much to go around and they're trying to preserve it. And then the rations have to be cut again and cut again until people are are mad with hunger, starving to death and suffering. And you imagine Jeremiah seeing all of this happening, seeing this destruction and this desolation not played out over moments, but over weeks and months as Israel starves to death in the city of God. Lamentations 4 4 describes the, the... Suffering of the, the infants, the, the tongue of nursing infants stick to the roof of its mouth for food, for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to him, to them. You, you imagine the prophet looking out at, at the city and hearing the wails of, of these children who are starving to death. And it, it goes on even further into the depths of, of destruction when we read in verse 9, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. This is the the death that comes through sin. The the horrid destruction that happened to Israel. And it is the, the debasement and the evacuation of all that is is good as we see. Um, death work itself out through the people. We should get a sense from this, the utter horrendous nature of sin. The more we see this, these just penalties for sinfulness, the more we should realize our despised state as people who sin. And the more we should see how just is our condemnation when we turn to evil. And the more we see that, the more precious our redemption becomes. The more we... we, lament the sorrows of evil, the more amazing it is to remember that God has saved us from all of this and worse. 
not as if it was some outside person doing it to us, but this as the just sentence we deserve that was put on Christ. It's amazing that that in a book that is this dark and weighed down, what is the, the central chapter, chapter three, what is the, the deepest, uh, what is the, the pinnacle of this book, sits at the heart of it with a message of hope. We read in Lamentations 3, uh, verses 21 and following, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Not hope like the the joy of a man who doesn't know any difficulties and is now looking at just another good thing he's going to get to enjoy. Like, oh, everything's good, and now I have a hope of some cool plans for the weekend or something. But the hope of a people who are broken down and crushed under their sin. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I'm, what faith it takes to pray this in the midst of thinking about all of this destruction. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. So when everything earthly has been taken away from me, when I have seen such great misery at the cost of sin, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put dust, his mouth in the dust. That's like praying with your face smashed into the ground and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Mm. Later on, who, verse 37, who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad should come? Why should a living man complain, a, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. This is, this book is written for this message to sit at the heart of all of this weeping and lament. In the depths of the darkness, in the most debased and brought low position that, that people can be, we find that the grace of the Lord goes further and that there's still hope in that. And ultimately this hope 
is manifest in Christ. As we see a Savior who is receiving the punishment for sins. Not his sins, but our sins. That he is brought low in anguish. And yet even in the midst of that, there is great hope in the manifestation of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. It's amazing that in in the depth of this darkness, there is still hope. And so hearts that are, are broken down under the punishment for their sin, that are weeping and lamenting, should then get to this point and see great reason for hope if they turn and put their trust in God. And so as we read in verse 40, this this call for repentance, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to the God in heaven. So hearts broken under sin, see the hope in a God who is merciful and repent and trust in him. And we see in that such a great capturing of the truth of the gospel. We often have to be broken down in sorrow for our sin before we can truly appreciate the goodness of the good news. And as Christians who have trusted in the gospel, sometimes when we fall into sinfulness, we have to receive the discipline of the Lord to, to taste how wretched the things we're choosing to do are so that we might turn and repent and move closer to the Lord. Like a father disciplines his children, so the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And ultimately, this this call for repentance is fulfilled in chapter 5, as the poem written here is a, a prayer to God. Lamenting the sorrows, but desiring to see God bring his salvation. As it starts in verse 1, crying to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. And then wonderfully fulfills at the end in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. But that prayer, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. God is the one who has brought them low. And he is the one who has the power to raise them up again, to restore them to himself. Renew our days as of old. Does God answer that prayer? Not here. He does, you know, later on, but he doesn't answer it here. No, but how does he answer it later on? He sends Christ. Yeah. He answers it but not just to restore to them 
the days as of old, but to bring about even better days. This is God working his good purposes through suffering. If if the purpose of suffering is that, like, things are good, we suffer, and then we get back to where things are at, it is hard to see what purpose there is in suffering. But when we see that things are good in a way, and then suffering comes, and on the other side, God brings about even better things, we can see that God has brought the suffering, brought us low for a time, to bring greater things. And we see this in the story of Scripture, that there was the garden, paradise, and then suffering of sin. But the ultimate hope is not just being restored to the garden as if the whole purpose of it was to get back to where it started, but is to get to an even greater promise that we would be adopted as sons into the family of God, not just his creation, but but partakers of Christ, that, that we would be sons and fellow heirs. And so all throughout scripture, we see how God is working not just to to restore the good things that once were, but wielding suffering to bring about even better things. I've just got a couple of verses come to my mind. The sufferings of this present time yeah. are not worthy to be compared to the glory mm-hmm. which shall be revealed to us. And about the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus, he endured the cross despising the shame, yeah. but for the joy that was set before him, that's why he endured the cross. So mm-hmm. he had the sufferings and then the glory that followed. those are good verses Um, it also strikes me Paul writing to the Philippians and thinking about the sufferings that they will have to endure and seeking to encourage them tells them of Christ and calls them to be like him in Philippians 2 uh, verses 8 and following he talks about Christ being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, is Christ, Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And so his example to the Philippian church that is going to face suffering is to be like Christ, humble in suffering, so that you may be like Christ, triumphant in glory. If we have hope just in this life, we're of all people to be pitied, like the, the, the... people in lamentations if their hope is just in jerusalem and in the temple they are contemptible and it is fitting that they should weep and mourn but we do not run as people who do not have hope but we have our hope set on the living god and we know that like lazarus 
we may receive suffering in this life, but be comforted in the next. So let us run with endurance and let us mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. Let us hate sin and its punishments. Any questions before we finish or comments? Weeping may endure for a night, mm. for joy cometh in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pray. Mm. Lord, we thank you that you bring from death life, that you bring from destruction glory, that you pardon sin even though it is vile in your eyes and more contemptible than we could imagine. Lord, comfort us in our affliction, lead us to repentance, and lead us to hope in you, who are forever, and whose steadfast love endures always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He's there at 94. What more, right? Praise the Lord for full salvation that still rains upon us.